The text for the sermon is taken from the end of the epistle. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We have entered tonight, strangely enough, into a great feast at the end of Lent. A grand celebration of the institution of the Holy Eucharist right before our solemn remembrance of Good Friday. We have decorated the altar in white. Our vestments have changed into the color of joy and celebration. Even the Gloria is brought back in at the end of the service today. And yet, at the same time, we notice some things are still different. The crosses are still veiled. Even with this celebration, there is a hint of mourning. And that is exactly what happens. We will take away all that is festive. In fact, we're going to take away everything. The sanctuary will be cleared. The altar will be stripped, which reminds us in a vivid fashion of how Christ's clothes were torn off of his body and he was hung upon the cross naked. In our sorrow and mourning, the colorful and festive garments will be taken away, and all is laid bare. Tonight, we will also add the ancient practice of washing the altar with water and wine. We are to remember how Mary Magdalene washed Jesus' feet with her tears, cleaned them with her hair, and then poured perfume upon him, thus anointing him for his death. Father Glenn will take the palms from this past Sunday, and after pouring wine and water upon the altar, he will scrub it clean, and thereby preparing the altar for the body of Christ. Silence then descends upon the church and upon us. The vigil begins as we attentively devote our time to praying in front of the consecrated hosts and as we enter into Good Friday. Liturgically, we have been taken through a flurry of movement and change. And within this change, it's sometimes hard to see how all this movement makes sense, how it's all brought together. It seems that the magnificent Amen of the Gloria is still resounding in this church as the stark chant of Psalm 22 begins. How does this drama make any sense? And it is here that we must turn to our readings and the words and actions of Jesus in order to see some connection between his last few days. First, it is our epistle that opens up the Last Supper to us. And this Last Supper was the Seder meal in which the Jews still remember God's preservation of the Jews from the Egyptians. In Exodus, each family sacrificed a lamb. They spread its blood upon the doorframe of the house in order to be passed over by the angel of death. Each new year, as the Jews commemorated this, each new Seder meal was considered not just a remembrance of that one night, but they believed it to be an actual participation in the Exodus. During the liturgy of the Seder meal, for example, the leader will talk about the Exodus in the present tense, as if the one sitting at the table, even this week, 
are still going through the Exodus. The Passover night was still a night of setting watch because it was the night of waiting for the Messiah. During the Seder meal, there's basically two parts. The one that looks back to the Exodus in Egypt and the one that looks forward to the hope of God's blessing and the coming of the Messiah. The food of the meal signifies different aspects of that story. For example, uh, the bitter herbs are for all the sufferings that the Jews had to suffer in Egypt. Uh, the, the matzah bread is the unleavened bread that the Is Israel had to make in order to hurry uh, from Egypt. The meal, though, is centered around the eating of a lamb. Actually, to fulfill the law in regards to Passover, uh, the family had to eat the lamb. But the liturgy did not finish with the meal itself. There are also four cups of wine that must be drunk during the liturgy of a Seder meal. And the Seder service is not even considered finished until all four cups are drunk. This is important. Now, because Jesus radically changes the Passover. During the meal, this is what Paul is telling the Corinthians, Jesus now tells his disciples that the bread that they're eating is his body. The wine which they drink is his blood. But if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see that Jesus does not drink of the fourth cup. After Jesus says, this is my blood, that's when he holds up the third cup, which is also known as the cup of redemption. They sing the final hymns of the service, but they leave the house before they actually drink the fourth cup. Jesus is then, we know the story, taken by soldiers. He's tortured, and he carries his cross to Golgotha. During this time, Jesus is offered more wine. It was customary to offer those who were about to be crucified, to offer them lots of wines, to help them bear through the pain. But Jesus refuses. The time is not right. Then at the last part of his crucifixion, Jesus says, I thirst. And the people nearby hold up a sponge with sour wine. Jesus is now drinking his fourth cup. And he says, it is finished. The Seder meal has now been completed. And now Jesus has truly joined the Seder meal with the crucifixion. He has joined himself to be the Passover lamb, slaughtered on the cross. The Holy Eucharist, then, is the meal in which we now eat the sacrificial offering. It is the time at which we remember where we truly enter into that sacrifice. The bread that we eat is the flesh of the sacrifice. The blood that we drink is the blood, the wine that we drink is the blood of that sacrifice. And that is the one true sacrifice offered by the Son to the Father perfectly and eternally. We are not making a new sacrifice when we say the Mass. We are entering into the continual sacrifice that Jesus once offers to his Father. And it is that sacrifice he made on Calvary. 
we enter into Calvary, we enter into that sacrifice at the foot of the cross each time we come to Holy Communion. And so we enter into Good Friday only through Monday Thursday. Our liturgy is clear about this union as well. We partake in Jesus' most blessed body and blood when we receive the gifts and creatures of bread and wine. According to thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, holy institution, that is Holy Communion, in remembrance of his death and passion, and that is Calvary. We come to Mass then to offer ourselves, to be joined to that sacrifice. As we partake the bread and wine, we now are joined to Christ's sacrifice that he offers to his Father. The liturgy puts it this way. We ask God that at Holy Communion we may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. As we receive Christ, we are filled with grace, healed from our sins, and we are unified with Christ. This then brings us to the odd gospel of the washing of the feet. John's gospel only mentions the Last Supper. He doesn't give a full account unlike the other gospels or unlike Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. And I tried to show a couple weeks ago that one reason could be for this that Jesus has already claimed in John's gospel to be the bread of life. And at the multitude of the feeding of the 5,000, he's already multiplied the bread. He's already consecrated himself as the bread. But the Apostle John is still connecting Monday, Thursday to Good Friday through the washing of the feet of the disciples. John starts chapter 13 by stating that Jesus knew it was his time for departure. Having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end. The end, of course, meaning his, his own death. Judas goes off to do the work of the devil in darkness, and Jesus then performs his last act with his apostles. And we could take this just to be a simple ethical lesson for us, that we need to live in humility and serve others. That's not a bad lesson. But within the narrative, the Apostle John is doing much more than that. You see, throughout the Gospel of John and his epistles, John is stressing our union with Jesus. Our union lifts us into a new creation. Perhaps we might even say it's lifting us into a new reality. It is the sacramental reality of the church. And this community exists because of the immense love of God. And we live out our lives in Christ's love. Therefore, the example of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples is not an effective lesson because it's just a really good example. Rather, John's trying to show you that Christ's love for his disciples, yes, even to the point of washing their feet, it rests upon the conquest 
of the whole world through his entire life, culminating in the crucifixion. The washing of the feet, then, is the outworking of the crucifixion. It is the action of God's love. John writes in his epistle, In this way was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see where the love starts. The love starts in God's action. It starts in God's reality and then moves out to the disciples. And this is why, back to Paul, he's urging the Corinthians that as often as you can eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he come again. It is is in Christ's love, in his death, It is in his love for us that we live within the church. And it is in his love that we love one another. As we celebrate tonight the institution of the Holy Communion, and then as we enter into Good Friday, let your hearts and minds dwell upon God's love, the same love that drove Jesus to unite us to him, to suffer the passion and to die for us, on the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.